You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 26th of July 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and a very warm welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Emma Nelson and coming up on today's programme, the former captain of Pakistan's cricket team claims victory in the country's elections. Well, I'm quietly confident that this time we'll do it. It's the best prepared my party has been. And he did. We'll profile Imran Khan and the path that's taken him to power. Also ahead, remember the BRICS countries? The meetings being held among the nations once thought to be up and coming. But who upped and came and who sank? My guests Isabel Hilton and Robert Fox will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including the return of McCarthyism, why citizenship is the latest danger area under Donald Trump. Plus, there really is no such thing as a free lunch. We'll examine why Apple can't give apples to its staff. That's all to come on Midori House with me, Emma Nelson. And a very warm welcome to Studio One. Casting their keen global eyes over today's news agenda are my guests, the editor of China Dialogue, Isabel Hilton, and the defence editor of the London Evening Standard newspaper, Robert Fox. Welcome both to the programme. It's more than a quarter of a century since the dashing playboy cricketer Imran Khan captained the Pakistani team to glory in the cricket world. Within the past 24 hours, Mr Khan, now 65 years old, has claimed another national victory, this time in the country's general elections. It's been a long road for the man who would be Pakistan's next prime minister, and the polls are marred by violence and accusations of the military stopping people from voting. Isabel, this is not the best way to come to power when you've waited this long, is it? Well, it's not the best way to come to power, although I have to say I don't remember any Pakistani election in which somebody didn't cry foul with some justification. And I think we should at least celebrate the fact that this is a, the only sec, only the second time since Pakistan was founded that there has been, as we anticipate there will be, a peaceful handover between civilian governments that have completed their term. So that's a good thing. Um, he's going to have to do quite a lot of uh, peace building in within Pakistan but um, but nevertheless I think we should recognize that this is this transition is important this has been a long path to power hasn't it Robert yes it has because I haven't worked in Pakistan over much no but rather over much I suspect I've worked next door in uh, Afghanistan since 1989 I know as, as, as Isabel has done knows this area much more And I think it is an extremely worrying time, as Isabel said, both uh, as regards Pakistan internally. He has set himself an agenda regarding the economy. But the crying foul about the presence of the army, yes, it's right always to be aware of that and how important the military is because it is the para-state in Pakistan and you have to be absolutely clear about that. What is not absolutely clear is exactly how that para-state intends to manoeuvre with regard to Afghanistan, where things are a lot more delicate than we might be led to believe from reading the public, the international press at the moment. And is uh, Imran Khan, Isabel, the right man to do this, given the fact that anybody who hasn't followed Pakistani politics that closely will remember him, as I described him a moment ago, a playboy cricketer, and one can wonder how he's ended up 
being in this position where he's being accused of allowing the military to propel him to power and he's determined to you know, root out corruption in Pakistan. It's, it is it's a, a huge really, journey. It is an extraordinary journey. And, and indeed, when I first met him, he was still just leaving the playboy phase. He was still married to Jemima and he was still young and good-looking and regarded as a political lightweight who would never make it. So, you know, he has worked very hard. What is curious, though, is this transition uh, that he has undergone in, you know, his own core beliefs. He, you know, he was educated in the UK. He was, you know, he was a very westernised figure. And then he strikes up in the 90s an alliance with Hamid Ghul, whom mm. Robert, I'm sure, knows yeah, well, well, who was the former ISI officer who remained extremely close to the Taliban. He was, he was you know, quite a figure in Benazir's first uh, uh, administration. When the United States launched its attack on Afghanistan after 9-11, I remember Hamid Ghul sort of tapping the side of his nose and saying, it's not over yet, you know, ask where, then named a whole list of equipment that he happened to know had been spirited away somewhere. And he was part of a network of ISI officers who at that time were regarded as deeply problematic in the sense that, you know, he was personally bitter about the way the Americans kind of dumped him after, uh, or dumped Pakistan after the Soviet departure from Afghanistan. And they remained very loyal to Osama bin Laden. They regarded him as, you know, a fine leader and so on. I don't think he ever really gave up those beliefs. So to see Imran Khan uh, setting up a kind of lobby group with Hamid Ghul 10 years ago was pretty striking. And I think it probably tells you something about your question about Afghanistan or, you know, what will happen with Afghanistan that I suspect we will see uh, a, another attempt to accommodate with the Taliban. Uh, I, th I suspect that the army still regards Afghanistan as necessary for what they call strategic depth. You know, where does Pakistan retreat to? Should India ever invade and all that kind of thing? So we're going to see another round, I think, of, of support, either overt or covert, from Pakistan for Islamization. It is that, it, that issue, isn't it, that when you take someone who has that global background, which you describe, and yet he, uh, by all accounts, has focus so much on internal politics and, and, and the internal direction of his, of his country. Where are these two sides of him going to meet? Is he going to be able to step back and see the globalisation and see the perspective that he once came from? Or is he going to be entrenched, as so many of his predecessors have been, in factions, corruption, dealing with the neighbours? And, and well, there's certainly be a lot of dealing with the neighbours. I mean, he's, he's, his appeal to the, to, to, the, to the electorate has largely been about the corruption of, of other parties. And, you know, you can't really, can't really quarrel with that. Uh, uh, however, uh, he's taking over at a time when Pakistan is... You know, the economy is pretty ropey. China is the other major factor, actually, that, that we should be looking at because China has this enormous, you know, uh, CPEC deal with Pakistan. It holds so much debt in, and Pakistan is, is in so much debt to China over CPEC that the finance minister didn't, didn't want to open the books to the IMF because the IMF would have, would have said, you can't afford this, you can't pay it. And the, I think the other thing that we will see is, is a much closer collaboration 
on security matters with China. It's already sure. beginning around CPAC. Sure. Um, and, and, you know, we're quite likely to see the kind of internal monitoring and security system that China's setting up in Xinjiang uh, imported to Pakistan. And what kind of influence will that have on the way that Pakistan does business with itself and the way that it is run, given the fact that the accusations have been flying this Imran Khan has been propelled to power by the military? I think, I think Isabel is absolutely right, and I think there are three points to this triangle. I think that you can never, never, never ignore the ISI. It is a parastate within a parastate, and it cannot go away. There have been excellent work by colleagues of ours, uh, like Carlotta Gall, who have absolutely brought this out, and that absolutely is concerned. The second point you're right about is China and China's ambition that it is both parochial and global, because they have got to secure this strip of Afghanistan for the one road policy, which they are really uh, serious about. And the other thing which we have to confront head on is what the trade-off with Taliban is. And he did inherit that from Hamid Gul. And one of the things that is brought up constantly in the election is that he gave $3 million to the Haqqani Madrasa uh, up, in, up, 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 up on the frontier. So we know he's in it and we know he's part of it. And I think, I'm afraid, he may not prove to be the spider, but he may prove to be stuck in the web how big do you, time. How do you think he will deal with the likes of the Americans and the British, whose involvement in, in neighbouring Afghanistan is so troubling and is so tightly interwoven with what happened in Islamabad. And not going away either. Yeah. <clears throat> Donald Trump announced at the beginning of the year, you may remember, that he was going to cut uh, military aid to Pakistan in, unless Pakistan dealt with its domestic terrorism, which you know, I think cutting military aid to Pakistan doesn't help either way in dealing with domestic terrorism. And, and it's a fact of life if you're dealing with Pakistan that you're dealing with many forces that you can't control. And you have to decide whether the game is worth the candle. And that's been a problem for every American administration. So, you you know, they chose to fight uh, the Russians with, a, with essentially a religious war. That led to the next iteration, which was the Osama phase. You know, it, it's a very, very difficult region. And Pakistan plays a deeply ambivalent role, an ambiguous role. One of the curious things about the relationship with Pakistan, with China, is that China is currently in the midst of the most extraordinary repression of its own Muslim populations yes. in Xinjiang. Yeah, and I have yeah. never met a Pakistani of this uh, political persuasion who'd really acknowledged that their their co-religionists were being were being uh, really quite persecuted at this point in Xinjiang. It's it is extraordinary. very prominent, but the other bit that we must add in, and I agree, as you were saying, that the British, if anything not quite covertly, but not obviously, are getting more involved in Afghanistan because of the weakness of Ashraf Ghani. The, uh, the previous Karzai uh, regime is seen for exactly what it was, a kleptocracy, a Pashtun kleptocracy. So that is now off the table, and it's causing the ruination, the money laundering system. It's why Dubai is, contributes to why Dubai, there is less and less confidence there. But now we've got somebody who is supposed to be the technocrat, again, a cleaner-upper, an anti-corruption man, but he can't get a solid base. So we can see, this is why it coincides with the arrival of Imran Khan, the British and the Americans are putting Ashraf Ghani to find the decent bits of the Taliban that he can do a deal with. There is a very big game afoot as we speak with this, and Imran Khan's going to be a very important part of it.
It's 11 minutes past six here in London, 18.11. You're listening to Midori House with me, Emma Nelson. My guest today, Isabel Hilton and Robert Fox. Now, everybody, remember the BRICS? Once upon a time, it was all we could talk about. Five nations, Brazil, Russia, India, China, China and then South Africa, all up and coming, all in need of a little nurturing, but all capable of greatness. Well, nearly a decade since they, those countries formed an alliance, they're meeting again at their 10th annual summit. But has the world moved on a little bit too much? Are the BRICS still relevant? Isabel, what do you think of that? Well, I think it was always, I mean, it was a very handy acronym, um, but but it was, it was yeah, right, it was, you know, invented by a, a, a Brit. Um, and his, he, he did a subsequent um, attempt to do, you know, the next iteration, um, which completely fell flat. The BRICS was always a very lumpy arrangement. You know, you have China by far the biggest, India, uh, Russia, uh, Brazil and South Africa. What do they have in common? Not enough is the answer. I mean, what, what he thought they had in common was that they were uh, symbolized the rise of the rest. And that this he was right about about the, the, the extent to which economic... Uh, economic power and political power would move east, if you like, and that this would change the global arrangements. And that, I think, you know, 10 years on, clearly, they're being changed in all sorts of ways, although it's not an orderly transfer of power to the BRICS. The BRICS themselves, meanwhile, have struggled to find a reason to be together. And one of the things they set up was the new investment bank, the uh, the, the BRICS bank, which is undercapitalized and which tends to kind of hand out. Uh, for instance, they had a, uh, they, they announced a couple of projects uh, this week, uh, which included funding a subway line in China. Well, you know, uh, that's not really what it was for. And some energy projects in South Africa. But before the summit, South Africa was quite vocal in its complaint about not getting enough benefit from the BRICS bank and that, that the purpose of the bank was really not being developed clearly enough as a bank. Uh, it, it has been overshadowed by the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, which is China's showcase multilateral bank. But again, you've got China's big showcase Belt and Road project, which India pointedly refused to join. So I'm not sure that it's really going to be any smoother. Brazil's economy is going yeah. down the tubes again. You know, um, it it's, it's problematic. We have a two-tier brick system here, though, don't we? From, from the way that history has played out, as you've described there, the idea of China, probably Russia and India, taking control of so many parts of the world agenda and the likes of South Africa, you know, sits still at the table but saying you're not giving us enough. I mean, if you have things like the New Development Bank... If you have this thing, it's called was it the Contingency Reserve Agreement, which hands out cash to, to member states when they're when they're when they're stuck, for, when they're you know their pockets are empty. Does does the likes of China need that kind of a helping hand? It's very good window dressing. Uh, it's absolutely part of uh, what Joe Nye, the great Joe Nye, still going strong, his latest notion of sharp power, of getting out there, getting among them, talking to bright minds. This place economically, politically, with the new postmodern mercantilism of China doesn't mean a thing. Absolutely doesn't mean a thing at all. I agree. The thing that is absolutely striking that when Jim O'Neill came up with BRICS, you know, in the, in the aftermath of 9-11, 
there were huge expectations of Brazil. And what is going on in Latin America? It has got, gone so completely wrong. It's, you know, indulging in a bit of it myself, the sort of commentariat on the, the news, news, news pages, I call them, of the press. Oh, boy, can they go wrong? And they've gone wrong on this one. And in a way, I think it was a terrible mistake to say, well, let's look at what the global economy is. Let's get over the end of history thesis for Fukuyama. Let's have anything but Europe and the USA, which was really his, his remake. The trouble is, either it's global or it isn't, and you've got to take the whole thing, the, the, the whole thing in. But you're quite right that China is dominant, and one of the most important things about China is its presence in Europe now. China is becoming an Im very important European player. And it's funny, you know, whether it's the FT, whether it's me writing for the Standard or the BBC or whatever, it's one of these big elephants you look in the, at in the room and you look straight through it, but it's terribly, terribly important. Um, you mentioned the idea of the, 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 the creation of this rather lumpy acronym. Is this a cautionary tale against the creators of clever acronyms? Because one thing that I think has surprised us all is that perhaps when the BRICS acronym was created and the, the countries were brought together, that people would assume that the global world order would continue in the way that it did nine or ten years ago. And we have seen just how you can never, ever guess what's happening around the corner. I think it's a cautionary tale against management consultants, honestly. Um, I know I'm going, probably going to get a ton of um, angry mail about this, but, but management consultancy charges a lot of money to impart an idea of certainty and predictability to people who are trying to, you know, do things and run businesses and, and make investments and so on. But, but in my... Uh, journalistic career, and I imagine in Roberts, every major event that has changed the world has come out of the blue as rather a surprise. You know, 1989, I remember the Cold Warrior saying, oh, you know, the tanks will roll over East Germany, they'll never let East Germany go. You know, then the war came Gone down. Gone in a week. Etc, etc. And, and uh, I, I think the whole of 1989, beginning with the now-forgotten uprising in Tibet, then Tiananmen, and yes. then, and then uh, uh, November, was a surprise and the the the, prob the problem with with trying to impose that kind of shape on the world you know is that it didn't really look i mean it 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 got some things right the world was changing yes but what it didn't look at was what whether there really was a common purpose here and for that you have to understand the politics of each of those countries mm. and it was fairly clear i think looking at them that they were not going to be this was not going to be a harmonious party there just wasn't enough that was solid there so <laughs> i think like always understand date. the politics yeah where on, on, in theory you should all get on, but when you actually come to it, the chemistry isn't quite well. There. Quite, but it looks very good in a shiny brochure, I and he it, got I an awful lot of mileage out of it. I know you don't like the idea of management consultants, but <laughs> in the, in the thirty seconds that we've, we've got remaining on this item, I'm going to make you think about who's part of the next BRICS club, and try and possibly think a little bit more coherently. So, who would you say are the up and three or four up and coming nations who actually should be getting together around a table and talking? Oh gosh, I think we are in a lot of flux here. But I think the, the, I mean, the shape of it is clear. You know, China's going to be very big. The question is, what is India going to do? What is Japan going to do? What is East Asia really going to look like? And that's still very much in. in I'm not going to fail you. I think we're pl pricing too much. As somebody who did Oxford history and so on, we're putting too much price on nations and nation states. Mm -hmm. I think the agglomerations and conglomerates are not going to be necessarily predicated either on the nation, and this is the influence of cyberspace, 
nor the state. It's, it's new spaces, new arrangements, new alliances are going to be created. But and I, oh boy, we're in for a ride. I do think that a lot of them are there and we're not paying enough attention to them. We don't pay enough attention to the Shanghai Cooperation Organization yeah. or to 16 plus one or to these things which which are being formed. And we kind of, because they're not things that we are part of, we recognize we're not paying enough attention. One of the big problems is social resilience. And that's why a size of a state, I think, is going to be terribly important. The beauty of a building is its size by proportion, Aristotle. It's the Scotlands, the Denmarks, the Norways, the Swedens, Finland. I think they're really going to surprise us. You're listening to Midori House with me, Emma Nelson, and my guests today are Isabel Hilton and Robert Fox. Coming up next, the return of McCarthyism in the US and why there's no such thing as a free lunch at Apple. Stay with us. Pack your bags and join us on a global tour through exciting and inspiring cities. From Madrid to Miami, Tokyo to Toronto, we've created travel guides that will help you get the best out of a city, no matter how short your stay. We'll whirl you around some of our favorite architectural spots, top cultural haunts, and then point you in the direction of a well-earned drink from a little-known cocktail bar. We've also scouted the prettiest running routes, the most design-savvy shops, and the best hotels to comfortably rest your head. View our full range of travel guides at monocle.com or visit any good bookstore and plan your next escape today. Cities are fun. Let's explore. And if you've just joined us, a very warm welcome to Midori House with me, Emma Nelson, live on Monocle 24. Still with me, Isabel Hilton, editor of China Dialogue, and Robert Fox, a defence editor of London's Evening Standard newspaper. Now, could an American man, woman or even child have his or her rights as a US citizen removed? It seems a question that should be consigned to the lecture theatres teaching history students about McCarthyism, but it's emerged that this issue is very much on the agenda of the Trump administration. It's also been reported that in the early days of Donald Trump's tenure at the White House, questions were asked about the possibility of adding a citizenship question to the US Census of 2020. Isabel, what, in your opinion, is happening here? I think it's just another abuse of power. I, Donald Trump does seem to think that, that the United States belongs to him and that all his feuds become national causes, which is uh, which is pretty grim. I mean, mercifully, I think the courts would, you would toss this out. But the idea that he can intimidate people and threaten people with a loss of citizenship, simply, I mean, we know how he reacts to, you know, even personal insult. I absolutely would find this repellent. And I think that, <clears throat> excuse me, most American citizens would. It, it's the question of the idea that you said an American court would throw it out. But given the way that things have been playing out recently, Robert, where are the legal checks and balances that are going to stop something like this from happening? Because if this is an executive power that Donald Trump decides to exert, yes, it will take an awful long time. But ultimately, we've seen things like the, you know, the travel ban and the, the migrant issues really having to be wrestled over. Well, I agree that the judiciary should deal with this right up to the Supreme Court, and they should have learnt about it. But we know the court in which Trump operates, and it's very interesting. He's been very active in it lately. Um, I, I gather his tweets have been called into question, but the fact that uh, Huckabee Sanders banned the CNN correspondent from an open briefing by Trump because just we don't like it. This is this is the mo. It's it's uh, it's shock jock radio, Rush Limbaugh, and the idea that on Air Force One that they. Should 
showed CNN on the recent trip uh, before they showed Fox News, which got an explosion from the commander in chief. And so this is it, it sounds ridiculous, but it really is quite serious. He thinks, you know, it is the playpen tyrant. He thinks he can rearrange the pile of bricks to, uh, uh, in his own favor. And there are two aspects, as you rightly say. One is. I do think the question of the next census is now becoming very important because this one has not gone away. They are thinking of adding a citizenship um, uh, question to it. And it's not exactly left field. It's coming in from the right is what Steve Bannon is up to, which is really quite eye-watering. Um, he, he gets into Italy, mucks about in the election there with his well-known uh, anti-immigrant nativist agenda. He now starts a new movement, sorry, and it is called The Movement, uh, in Brussels with the um, express purpose to destroy the EU because he's against internationalism, he's for na uh, nativism, anti-immigration. Uh, anti he is certainly moving to the regeneration of UKIP in the UK um, uh, and uh, hoping that people like Gerd Wilders of the Freedom Party can come and campaign uh, to help undermine Mrs May and, uh, and so on. And this will go into, into the States. This is not a small thing. It's a thing that's been around since um, uh, the Clash of Civilizations because Samuel Huntington's follow-up book was a book called who are we? And it is the playbook of new American conservative nativism. Isabel, you can you can almost understand why Donald Trump would rip up trade deals because that's what he does. He is a businessman. You can almost understand why he starts banning migrants because of uh, the idea of making American great again and giving jobs to, to, to American people first. There's protectionism and isolationism there straight ahead. But what is it about citizenship that is such a pressing issue for the president this is about uh, the appeal this is a political appeal um i mean if you if you are donald trump uh your your political strength is that you can arouse the mob and uh, as as robert says you know this if you follow the the act the activity of steve bannon and all the people around trump what they have in common is arousing the hatred of the other. And that's, you know, we've seen, heaven knows, we in Europe know this one. Uh, we've seen it in the United States before. I mean, the, the absurdity of a country that was built on immigration. What is nativism in the United States? You know, <laughs> what did immigration ever do for America? Well, it is, it is a country to, composed of immigrants. Everyone's going to have to expel themselves. Well, indeed. It's and, just Team Trump. It's a very yes. childish view so of his support base. So so it's all about. I mean, there are there is. It's about white resentment of of other races. He can count on those votes. It's about uh, male anxiety about women. It's about you know church anxiety about different forms of sexuality. You put all those together, and you describe yourself as defending civilization against all these other people. And that's that's his power base. That's what that's the discourse he's actually quite good at. And it's all about hate. Finally, with the time, it's uh, 26 minutes past six here in London. It's nearly dinner time and it is for many a perk of the job. That bowl of cereal, juicy apple or evening sushi box. Free food has become part and parcel of so many private companies' cultures. Supply your workforce with fresh, healthy breakfast, lunches and the occasional dinner. And you're saying we care about your health and your well-being. Well, Apple has come up against a problem in its new location. A bylaw prevents it from fully subsidising meals at its new home in Mountain View, California. Robert, what's the best free meal you've ever been given at work? Funnily enough, 
I visited the Pirelli tyre factory when I was on an exchange with the Corriere of Milan. Gosh, the free food in the canteens of Fiat and Pirelli were just amazing. You'd probably get two star and a Michelin guide for them today. But talk about pasta al dente. Boy, they knew how to do it because most of the cooks were southerners. And they were, it was absolutely great. Isabel, I, not, not in the workplace, but a work, my best work-related free meal uh, was actually relatively recent. And it was an invitation uh, which I cherish and I urge you all, if you get one, to accept to dinner at the Japanese embassy with the Japanese ambassador. It was the most wonderful meal, which went on through course after course after course. And at the end, the chef appeared and was given an absolutely heartfelt and spontaneous round of applause by the guests. So thank you, Mr. Ambassador. You are such and I'm possibly available on another evening. You're such you? a pair of freeloaders, <laughs> both of you. I mean, just going back to the idea of, of ending free meals. Some people say it's brilliant because it looks after lower paid staff who, who perhaps might need that extra boost with an apple in the morning. Morning. Others say it's actually encouraging people to stay longer than they would do normally, not letting them go home to their families because someone says if you stay past eight o'clock, you'll get a free box of sushi. The other thing that I think struck me about the about the position of the of the local authority was the notion that you have these firms with you know several thousand people in a kind of walled campus, and they're doing nothing in terms of interacting with the local community. So they're not supporting the dry cleaners or the local restaurants or the local uh, shops because they never have to leave. And I think socially that's very negative, and I think it would benefit both the communities that these big companies sit in and the people themselves to get to get out of the office, even for an hour at lunchtime. Is this a time, very briefly, Robert, to get government subsidies to make sure that your lunch is not necessarily free but pretty cheap? Yes, but I'm a bit worried that the Arthur Daly entrepreneurship, you know, the spiv will come in. And I hate to think what subsidised spaghetti or or, or or where my wife comes from, Olibolan in the Netherlands will look there are, like. There are ways of subsidising lower paid yeah. workers, you know, the, yeah, yeah. The, the, the food vouchers, the, stand, the luncheon vouchers sort of schemes. You can do all that, um, but you can still have contact with your neighbours. That brings us to the end of today's show. The warmest of thanks to Isabel Hilton and Robert Fox for joining us here at Midori House. My thanks also to our producer, Fernando Augusto Pacheco, researcher Paolo Schulze and our studio manager, David Stevens. More music next and at 1900, it's The Urbanist with Andrew Tuck. And we'll have more on the day's main stories on the Monocle Daily at 2200. Midori House returns at the same time tomorrow. I hope you can join me for that at 1800 London time. For now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thanks for listening. And I'm after Pirelli for a free bowl of pasta. Редактор